evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Pro-life advocates by the thousands gathered in our nation's capital today, walking in the 49th annual March for Life. We find out what ideas they have for protecting the unborn. In September, President Biden announced that 3.5 million federal employees would be required to get vaccinated or lose their jobs. Now, a federal judge in Texas has blocked the mandate nationwide. A historic investment in American semiconductor manufacturing. Intel will spend $20 billion to build what could become the world's largest chip plant in Ohio. And California is proposing to allow minors 12 and older to get the COVID-19 vaccine without parental consent. Despite the below freezing temperature in D.C. today, this year's March for Life had a significant turnout. Folks traveled to the heart of our nation to stand up for protecting mothers and unborn children. NTD's Melina Weiskup spoke to some of the people at the rally. It's that time of year again where thousands of people from across America come here to the nation's capital to march for life. Even in weather below freezing temperature, we ask them what they're doing back at home to protect the unborn. Uh, going to the abortion clinics, praying. Uh, Michigan right now has 75 ultrasound machines that we've set in previous clinics all around the state of Michigan. They can see that there is a life there. I believe we have to get involved, like in politics, in social media, in the media, make uh, people aware of the situation. Because if we don't, they are going to, and they are not promoting right values. Um, I think one of the things our churches do such a great job, but we do have to be able to offer more resources and support to our churches. The 49th March for Life in the nation's capital attracted a sea of people this year. Enthusiasm is strong, with many of them expecting a change for Roe versus Wade. We meet this year with fresh hope and heightened expectation. I'm hopeful that we'll see big changes. I think people are waking up to the value of life. The walkers marched along Constitution Avenue to the Supreme Court. Along the route were cheerful crowds. Why are we marching? Too close. Move back. And signs of all sorts, trying to raise awareness. One walker points out that these images and facts about abortions may hit home for some, but she offers a message of hope. And I would just want to tell them that God loves you. Even if you've done that, he can forgive you. But this movement is not limited to religious believers. A few young advocates tell us it's about human dignity. You don't have to be religious to be pro-life. Like it's a different subject. It's just a think of your humanity because in the name of progress many people has have stepped over others and I think we need we need to stop that uh, I think it's human dignity people forget so how to restore this dignity I think the solution is definitely a better morals uh, going back to what truth is going back to uh, what our founding fathers uh, you know, proposed, and that is uh, that we hear everybody's opinions, we come to compromises and solutions based upon truth. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. A few months ago, President Biden announced that 3.5 million federal employees would be required to get vaccinated or lose their jobs. Today, a federal judge has blocked that mandate nationwide. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. 
Good afternoon, everyone. The only exception to President Biden's vaccine mandate for federal employees was for those who received medical or religious exemptions, which have been hard to come by. U.S. District Judge Jeffrey Brown, who was appointed by then-President Donald Trump, worked expeditiously to make the ruling on the case only about a month after it was filed. Brown made the ruling on the same day federal employees could have been disciplined for not being vaccinated. Robert Henneke, executive director and general counsel for the Texas Public Policy Foundation, said the Biden administration didn't have the authority they claimed to enforce vaccine mandates. The government pointed to three statutes that, that it argued gave it authority. And very methodically, Judge Brown walked through each of the statutes that were claimed by the Biden administration as giving it the authority to do this. And he examined, said each of those three statutes doesn't say you can do this. And so you're seeing that as a common characteristic. The Biden administration is issuing these sweeping mandates just on its own. When they're being challenged in court, they're trying to point to some kind of vague statute to say that, that this arguably could, could give them the power to do so. And judges are correctly examining the text of the statute and saying, no, Congress never gave you this authority. The lawsuit was filed by Feds for Medical Freedom. The group describes itself as a national grassroots coalition formed to respond to mandates imposed on public servants and government contractors. Henneke says Judge Brown made the right decision, but there is a bigger picture that is being missed when judges have blocked the vaccine mandates. They're getting to the right outcome, but the courts are only addressing these vaccine mandates by looking at the specific text of the statute and deciding for themselves whether that statute gives the federal government the power under that law. It's missing the bigger context, the bigger question as to constitutionality. Forget what the specific statute may or may not say. Does the federal government have constitutional authority to command Americans to take a medical procedure that they don't want for themselves? I think under the Constitution, the answer is clearly no. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Henneke said that the Biden administration would likely appeal this injunction up to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And he added that the Fifth Circuit has been very strong in defending individuals against being compelled to take the COVID vaccine. Jason Perry, NCD News. The Transportation Department is going to block 44 flights heading to China operated by four Chinese airlines. The suspension will go into effect January 30th and end on March 29th. This is in response to China's decision to block several U.S. airline flights over COVID concerns. The four Chinese airlines impacted are Xiamen Airlines, Air China, China Southern Airlines, and China Eastern Airlines. And Intel plans to spend $20 billion to build a microchip factory complex in Ohio. The global chip shortage has interrupted production for over a year. And now President Biden is praising Intel's plan as one of the largest investments in chip making in American history. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. Intel announced Friday that they have chosen New Albany, Ohio, as the site of the $20 billion chip-making complex. The company plans to invest in the next decade up to $100 billion to build eight factories in the complex. President Biden praised the decision at a White House event. This historic investment for Ohio, one of the largest investments in semiconductor manufacturing in American history. A brand new $20 billion campus outside of Columbus, Ohio. 7,000 construction jobs, 3,000 full-time jobs. 
This could potentially be the world's largest chip plant. The U.S. used to produce 37 percent of the world's chips back in 1990. But today, it only makes 12 percent. Dependency on foreign chips and disruptions caused by the pandemic have led to a chip shortage in the country. Biden said that has to change. We are going to invest in America. We're investing in American workers. We're going to stamp everything we can made in America, especially these computer chips. Biden urged Congress to invest more in companies like Intel and making supply chains more resilient. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi seems to agree. In a letter to her Democratic colleagues on Friday, Pelosi said the House will soon introduce its competitiveness bill. It will supercharge our investment in chips, strengthen our supply chain, and transform our research capacity, plus many other key provisions. A medical examiner released the autopsy of the gunman who held four people captive at a Texas synagogue. He was killed by multiple gunshot wounds, and his death was ruled a homicide. The Tarrant County Medical Examiner released the information six days after Malik Faisal Akram took hostages. The 10-hour standoff ended with hostages escaping and an FBI tactical team rushing in. In Texas, a death being ruled a homicide indicates that one person was killed by another, but does not necessarily mean the killing was a crime. Federal officials have so far declined to say who shot Akram, citing an ongoing investigation. 44-year-old Akram was a British citizen. According to the BBC, he was known to British intelligence and deemed to no longer be a threat at the time he traveled to the United States. And disgraced South Carolina lawyer Alex Murdaugh is facing 23 new charges for forgery, money laundering and other crimes. He now has a total of 71 charges against him and is accused of stealing $8.5 million. A state grand jury handed down the new charges today. Murdaugh has been in jail since last October for charges of breach of trust, forgery, money laundering and computer crime that date back to 2011. The former lawyer defrauded more than a dozen of his clients. He would negotiate settlement money for his clients without telling them what they earned and then deposit the checks into his own personal accounts. The money was meant to pay for the client's pain and suffering or the anguish of the death of a loved one. Murdaugh is the fourth generation of a prominent legal family in South Carolina. He attributes his problems to years of drug addiction. A judge set his bail at $7 million and refuses to reduce it. And over a thousand mayors across the country are in Washington, D.C. for their annual conference. President Biden today is urging them to invest more in infrastructure. He's also calling for more funding for police. President Biden addressed the annual meeting of the U.S. Conference of Mayors Friday. He encouraged city leaders to use more funds from the American Rescue Plan and to implement the recently enacted infrastructure law. I urge every mayor in America to follow suit, to use the resources, the rescue plan. Big cities in U.S., like Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, and Minneapolis, are reporting record homicide rates. The New York Times cites data indicating that last year's murder rate was higher than at any point since 1996. Biden said more funding should go to the police. We shouldn't be cutting funding for police departments. I propose increasing funding. The U.S. Conference of Mayors represents cities with more than 30,000 people. The country has 1,400 such cities. 
A California company has developed a model to be able to process PCR COVID tests that give results in a few hours. They're currently doing the most tests by volume in California. NTD's Jason Blair has more. A lab in Menlo Park is processing around 100,000 COVID tests a day, which is currently the highest amount by volume in California. Twice a day, a small airplane lands in Palo Alto, containing thousands of swab samples from students, teachers, and staff at Los Angeles Unified School District, which is the second largest school district in the U.S. Uh, we started the company really with the vision of helping schools because we saw that as the foundation for communities to get back to normal. Kids had to be back in school for parents to go back to work. The samples are then driven to Summer Bio nearby in Menlo Park. Summer Bio launched in May 2020, shortly after the start of the pandemic. They say the current Omicron variant has resulted in the lab running at near capacity. They say it's the busiest they've been since August when the Delta variant was peaking. Despite the federal government's recent efforts to get more quick-resulted antigen tests sent to the public, Summer Bio says the polymerase chain reaction tests they conduct are necessary for many schools and businesses, as PCR tests are considered to be more accurate with quicker results. So that sample tube that we collect in the field goes nearly straight from the field into our automation instead of a bunch of handle, uh, handling manipulation by the, by the lab staff. It's, we're able to just take them in from the field and drop it into the automation. PCR testing usually takes a day or two to get results back, but Summer Bio says thanks to a fully automated process they developed that's running 24 hours a day, they're able to get results back in just a few hours. The co-founders said they hope their automated process will become a business model for similar labs nationwide. Jason Blair, NTD News, California. A California senator is proposing to allow children 12 and over to get vaccinated without their parents' consent. Some parents say that this is the government overriding parents' authority. Senator Scott Weiner introduced a bill to allow teens ages 12 to 17 to receive the COVID-19 vaccine without parental consent. Uh, this will empower our youth. Uh, we know that currently in California, nearly 1 million 12 to 17-year-olds are not vaccinated for COVID-19. Senate Bill 866, also known as the Teens Choose Vaccines Act, was introduced on Thursday. If passed, it would allow minors 12 and older to receive a dose without their parents' permission, as long as the vaccine is approved by the FDA. On average, COVID is less likely to be serious, uh, create serious illness for teenagers. Uh, teens do get sick. Uh, they go to their teens in the hospital, teens on ventilators, and tragically, teens who die. According to the state's statistics, the 0 to 17 age group accounts for 0.1 percent of COVID deaths. Weiner argues this bill builds on existing law that already allows kids 12 and older to consent to receiving the hepatitis B vaccine, birth control, and abortions. The San Mateo senator received a mix of responses on Twitter. The single biggest reason is most children don't make decisions that adults would make. So informed consent is the biggest single issue that I see. And children don't have the capacity to make that. So I just think it's overreach. It's unnecessary. Parents can make informed decisions for their children. Um, we know their background, their history, their risks, profile, etc. We care more about our kids than the, than the state does. I don't care what they say. They're not as invested in our children as we are. Another parent tells NTD he thinks legislation that chips away at the ability of a parent would be a huge mistake. 
there should be a very high standard for overriding a parent or lawful guardian's authority and only under the imminent or persistent and grave threat to the child's well-being. He says there are already established public school vaccination constructs, child protective services, and the courts to deal with those situations. So there is no need to give minors authority over these decisions. A custody battle is taking place in New Hampshire that's getting a lot of attention. In what may be a first-of-its-kind case, a father could lose his son for giving him ivermectin, a prescription drug used by some to treat COVID-19. NTD's Miguel Moreno reports. Former New Hampshire lawmaker J.R. Hole says that he gave his family ivermectin because they had COVID-19. That was in November. According to Hole, they quickly recovered from the disease with no lasting side effects. But he says that in December, child protection workers and police officers were at his door, ready to take his two kids who weren't home at the time. So, so they, they were concerned that I um, used um, a, a particular medication that's available online um, internationally, which is ivermectin. And I used it for myself. Our whole family used it to treat COVID. And they didn't like that. It's a very politicized drug or politicized medication. And they, um, they thought it was the root cause for all of the concerns relative to my son's visit to the emergency room. He says he had taken his son to the emergency room because the boy took too many Tylenol pills. According to Hole, that was seven to ten days after his son took his final dose of ivermectin. So in his view, the boy's symptoms were unrelated to the antiparasitic drug. The state initially sought Hole's son and daughter, but Hole says that now only custody of his son is at risk. And how did the state find out that you gave your son ivermectin? Our nurse turned us into the state. There, there's the thing is, there is a, there's, what's going to develop out of this is an incredible distrust of the medical community because if you can't have a conversation with your doctor, or in, in this case with the nurse, um, about how you're treating your family, because there is a threat that they're going to turn you into the state, people aren't going to share pertinent information. And that's going to lead to massive misdiagnosis of what the issue is. We were being open and honest with what was going on, trying to make sure our son was as healthy as possible. He said New Hampshire's child protection agency, known as DCYF, has charged him with not appropriately parenting. I tried to confirm this charge with DCYF, but an agency spokesperson cited confidentiality laws instead. But she did say use of a prescription medication as recommended by a licensed physician would not constitute child abuse or neglect. Hull told me that he obtained the ivermectin without a prescription, which may be why the agency wants custody of his child. He was scheduled for his first court hearing after our interview. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. One of the world's oldest medical journals is calling for the immediate release of all data related to COVID-19 vaccines and treatments. The journal calls it morally indefensible that so much of the data remains inaccessible and therefore unavailable for public scrutiny. NTD's Grace Coulter has the details. The British Medical Journal is demanding the full and immediate release of all data related to COVID-19 vaccines and treatment. The journal says doing so is in the public's interest. In an editorial published Wednesday, the BMJ noted that much of the product's trial data is still inaccessible to doctors, researchers and the public, and is likely to remain that way for years to come. The journal is calling this lack of transparency morally indefensible. 
In addition, BMJ accused pharmaceutical companies of reaping vast profits without adequate independent scrutiny of their scientific claims. The journal pointed to Pfizer, whose COVID-19 vaccine trial, it wrote, was funded by the company and designed, run, analyzed and authorized by Pfizer employees. Pfizer is still holding this trial data and has indicated that it won't begin considering requests for such data until May 2025. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration had initially asked a judge to allow it to release Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine data at a rate that would have taken around 75 years to fully produce. However, earlier this month, a judge ordered the agency to begin releasing the data at a rate that will take roughly eight months to produce in full. BMJ further added that regulators aren't there to dance to the tune of rich global corporations and enrich them further, but to protect the health of their populations. For this reason, the journal said, we need complete data transparency of all studies, and we need it now. Last month, the CDC was also sued over claims that it is improperly withholding COVID-19 safety data. Grace Coulter, NTD News, New York. Coming up, an unusual case of human smuggling that turned deadly. A family of four from India froze to death near the U.S.-Canada border while trying to cross into the U.S. on foot. And in New York, Republicans and members of law enforcement are calling on the governor to repeal a bail reform law after the latest shooting of a police officer. They say that the no-cash bail policy is contributing to an uptick in crime. That and more here on NTD News. Canadian authorities on Wednesday found the bodies of four people, including a baby and a teenager, near the border with North Dakota and Minnesota. It appears they froze to death while trying to cross into the U.S. on foot in the middle of a blizzard. We're very concerned that this attempted crossing may have been facilitated in some way and that these individuals, including an infant, were left on their own in the middle of a blizzard when the weather hovered around minus 35 degrees Celsius. The temperature in the region was around minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit. Authorities have arrested and charged 47-year-old Florida man named Steve Shand with human smuggling. U.S. Border Patrol found him driving a van carrying two illegal immigrants just south of the border in North Dakota. They are Indian nationals. Border agents later spotted five other Indian nationals in the snow nearby. The four people that died are believed to have come from the same group but failed to cross into the U.S. Court documents show that Shand was suspected to be involved in at least three other human smuggling cases. U.S. and Canadian authorities are working together to investigate the case and identify the victims. And Republicans and members of law enforcement are calling on New York Governor Kathy Hochul to repeal a bail reform law after the latest shooting of a police officer. The bail reform was established two years ago under then-Governor Andrew Cuomo. NTD's Chenny Wu has the details. New York City saw another police officer shot in the line of duty Thursday, the third since the new year. In response, local Republican leaders and law enforcement are calling on Governor Kathy Hochul to repeal the state's no-cash bail policy. Paul DiGiacomo, head of a local police union, says there's a direct correlation between New York's bail reform and an increase in crime. Because there are so many guns on the street and the policies that are in place with bail reform 
are not working, the people of this city are unsafe. The bail reform law went into effect in April 2020 under then-Governor Andrew Cuomo. It eliminated pre-trial detention and cash bail in cases involving most misdemeanor or nonviolent felony charges. The intent is to reduce jail population and the number of people behind bars while awaiting trial because they could not afford to pay bail. On Wednesday, Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman issued a local executive order to gauge the effectiveness of the reform. He's requiring the county's police department to publish a daily report that includes the names of individuals arrested, their criminal case data, and bail status. The Nassau Police Commissioner said, At the bottom of every press release, it will state if that individual had been released on that no-bail status and now he's being rearrested. A May 2021 report by the NYPD showed that crime rose by over 30 percent in April 2021 compared to April 2020. Major cities and states with similar laws for no cash bail, such as Chicago and Los Angeles, have also seen significant upticks in murders. The Chicago Police Department said that 2021 ended with 797 homicides, 299 more than 2019. And in Los Angeles, the county sheriff said homicides also increased about 94 percent compared to 2019. The country's overall murder rate in 2021 was at its highest in 25 years. Chenny Wu, NTD News. The FBI today announced key information about the investigation into Gabby Petito's death. In a notebook that was found near Brian Laundrie's body, Laundrie admitted to killing Petito, his girlfriend. The FBI did not specify what exactly Laundrie had written in the notebook. It was the first time authorities squarely pinned the blame for Petito's death on Laundrie, though he was the suspect, the prime suspect, all along. The FBI's Denver division said, quote, all logical investigative steps have been concluded in this case. The investigation did not identify any other individuals other than Brian Laundrie directly involved in the tragic death of Gabby Petito. Investigators say Laundrie had sent text messages to intentionally deceive people that Petito was still alive. Laundrie killed himself with a gun in a Florida swamp in October while the FBI was searching for him. And the NFL Divisional Playoff Round kicks off Saturday afternoon and features four games over two days. It ends with the most anticipated matchup Sunday evening when the upstart Buffalo Bills travel to Kansas City to take on the Chiefs. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Four games in a little more than 24 hours, and it begins with the Bengals at the Titans. Tennessee did an amazing job grabbing the top seed despite playing half the season without last year's leading rusher Derrick Henry who's expected to play Saturday. After winning their first playoff game in 30 years, Cincinnati is playing with house money. The Saturday evening game features the 49ers at the Packers and Lambeau Field should be frigid. Temperatures are expected to be in the single digits at kickoff, just as Aaron Rodgers likes it. On the opposite side, Jimmy Garoppolo has never started a game that was below 40 degrees at kickoff. Sunday afternoon has the Rams playing at the defending champion Buccaneers. Tampa Bay could be without all-pro tackle Tristan Wirfs. His loss would be significant as L.A.'s pass rush features a pair of greats in Aaron Donald and Vaughn Miller. On the flip side, the Rams' secondary is thin outside of Jalen Ramsey. Finally, the Chiefs host the Bills Sunday night. Although Kansas City is a two-point favorite, the Bills looked like world beaters last week in the demolition of Bill Belichick's Patriots. Kansas City beat Buffalo for the AFC title last year, but don't expect a repeat performance Sunday. The Bills are ready. Dave Martin, NTD News, 
New York. A tearful Adele postponed her entire Las Vegas residency just 24 hours before it was due to start because, she says, half her crew are sick with COVID-19. The British superstar was to perform 24 concerts over three months at Caesars Palace Hotel starting today in what would have been her first live appearances since 2017. Listen, I'm so sorry, but um, my show ain't ready. We've tried absolutely everything that we can to put it together in time and for it to be good enough for you. I can't give you what I have right now. Um, and I'm gutted. I'm gutted and I'm sorry it's so last minute. We've been awake for over 30 hours now trying to figure it out. And we're on it. We're going to reschedule all of the dates. We're on it right now. Um, and I'm going to finish my show. And I'm going to get it to where it's supposed to be. Now for you I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. Singer and actor Meatloaf has died at the age of 74. The cause of death is still unconfirmed. Best known for his debut Bat Out of Hell album, Meatloaf's career spanned six decades. He sold more than 100 million albums and appeared in movies including Fight Club and Wayne's World. Meatloaf, otherwise known as Michael Leah Day, was born in Dallas, Texas in 1947. He found success on the stage in the 1970s, performing in the Broadway musicals Hair and the Rocky Horror Show. He switched his focus to rock music, working with songwriter Jim Steinman on a debut album. Some of his hits include I Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That, and Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. Meatloaf publicly supported Republican candidates for office, but once said he's neither left nor right when it comes to politics. In 2011, Meatloaf was a contestant on reality TV series The Celebrity Apprentice, hosted by former President Donald Trump. Trump paid tribute to the late singer today, calling him smart, talented, open and warm. And coming up, California Governor Gavin Newsom visits an area strewn with undelivered parcels. Thousands of opened and damaged packages lay across railway tracks in East Los Angeles. Video taken of the debris went viral. And California Governor Gavin Newsom continues to call for students to return to in-person learning. The most recent statewide test scores took a drop. More in just a moment here on NTD News. California's Governor Gavin Newsom on Thursday visited an area covered in undelivered packages. There, in East Los Angeles, thousands of opened and damaged parcels sprawl out across railway tracks. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the story. Video taken of the debris went viral worldwide. Much of the footage was from drone shots, which showed the extent of the looting. Newsom spoke to reporters gathered by the train track. I see what you see, I see what you've been covering, I see what everybody's seen and asking myself what the hell is going on. I mean, look like a third world country, these images, the drone images that were on the nightly news day in and day out. Some networks weaponizing them for their own, you know, political agenda and others just reporting the damn news fairly and appropriately. 
Newsom held a press briefing alongside members of representatives from Railroad Hauling Company Union Pacific and the Los Angeles County Supervisor Hilda Solis, as well as a number of federal agents. And then the question you're going to ask is the question I'm asking, trust me, every single person by me, how do we make sure we don't have to keep coming back? How do we secure this site? How do we do a better job at making sure that this doesn't have to continue to happen? Transport crews will continue cleanup efforts in the area in the coming days, while California Highway Patrol will coordinate with law enforcement to help prevent theft on the railways. Newsom said 280 people have been arrested, and more are being pursued. He said investigators are targeting the fencing operations that sell the goods. Authorities said thieves have hit cargo containers aboard trains for months. The stolen packages are from retailers, including Amazon, REI, and others. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And Newsom is calling for students to return to in-class learning at their schools. His change in stance comes after a drop in standardized test scores last year. NTD's Dave Lamb reports. California Governor Gavin Newsom and several leaders reportedly want to keep school classrooms open. His call comes after forcing schools to shut down during the COVID-19 or CCP virus pandemic. Newsom said it's critical, top priority to keep the schools open, Political reported. Newsom cited the challenges of going online and the lost learning opportunities from not being in school. A majority of California school districts are open to either in-person learning or hybrid learning. Several districts remain as online-only learning. For a span of five years, standardized test scores have gradually increased in California until last year. Last year's results showed a roughly 49% passing rate of the English testing portion and less than 34% passing the math portion. According to U.S. News, California ranks 40th in the United States for K-12 schooling. David Lamb, NTD News, California. Elon Musk's brain implant company, Neuralink, is now hiring a clinical trial director. The company may be nearing human clinical trials after showing successful implant usage in a monkey last year. Elon Musk's brain implant company, Neuralink, is hiring a clinical trial director. The Fremont, California-based company posted a job listing searching for someone with understanding of the clinical trial process from beginning to end. The listing includes handling critical FDA interactions and knowledge of FDA regulations. The company's webpage says we are creating the future of brain interfaces, building devices now that will help people with paralysis. Late August, Neuralink showed footage of a monkey playing the video game Pong using only its mind along with their implant. In December, Musk told Wall Street that he predicts to implant Neuralink's device in human brains sometime in 2022. But Bloomberg reported Musk's prediction as overly optimistic, since he made a similar statement in 2019 that the device would be in human skulls by the following year. Neuralink has not publicly announced if it is conducting human trials yet. Coming up, Beijing requires American Olympians to enter their personal health information into a Chinese app. But a research group warns that the app has major security flaws. And security in the Indo-Pacific region is becoming a hot topic for Japan. In meetings with both the U.S. president and French officials, Japan emphasized the importance of a free and open Indo-Pacific. That and more on NTD News.
To get into Beijing's Winter Olympics, Team USA is required to give up their athletes' health data to a Chinese app. But a research group says the app has security flaws that could put their data at risk and that the risk wouldn't be limited to their health data either. NTD's Juliet Song has more. American athletes heading to Beijing's Winter Olympics have to do one thing before they're allowed into the country, download an app. Beijing is requiring athletes to upload their personal information through it. That includes their passport details, body temperature records, respiratory symptoms, and medications. But now, a cybersecurity research group says the app has major security flaws, meaning users could be left vulnerable to hacking and cyber attacks and have health information stolen. The app, called My2022, is owned by a Chinese state-controlled company. A data security expert breaks down the potential damage of a hack. One thing that people don't understand about apps in general, whether it's this app or an app developed by Google, an app is basically legal malware. And it, it enables the developer to conduct surveillance on the end user 24 by 7, 365 days a year. Lee says some app permissions allow the software's developers to collect attachments. So if you had a bank statement sent to you um, and it was attached to an email that an app developer can collect and, and the email uh, was hacked from the app developer's server, uh, it can contain information such as your bank information or medical information, your social security uh, information, passwords, and so forth. It's unclear if the Chinese app can collect attachments, but Beijing has so far dismissed security concerns. On top of the security issues, the research group points to a function of the app, which allows users to report other users' messages, especially those deemed politically sensitive. The developer then decides whether to remove the messages. What's more, the cybersecurity research group found over 2,000 so-called politically sensitive keywords inside the app. The list of keywords appears inactive, but developers can still use them to censor communication. Among the censored keywords are Chinese leader Xi Jinping's name, the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre, and Falun Gong, a spiritual discipline that has been targeted by a brutal Beijing persecution campaign for over two decades. <laughs> Juliet Song, NTD News. President Biden met with the Japanese Prime Minister today. It's his first noteworthy meeting with Japan's new Prime Minister. And Biden says that the U.S.-Japanese alliance is critical for world peace. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has that story. The U.S. is strengthening its alliance with a key country east of China, Japan. They jointly tackled issues relating to China as well as other regional threats. On Friday, President Biden met with the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida in a virtual meeting. Biden said the U.S.-Japan alliance is the cornerstone of peace and security in the Indo-Pacific and around the world. The online meeting lasted just under an hour and a half. It is the first substantial talk between the two countries since Japan's new prime minister took office. The two countries discussed cooperating closely to deal with China-related issues. Some of those include the East and South China Sea, Hong Kong and the Xinjiang region. Prime Minister Kishida said that they agreed to advance cooperation with other allies to bring about a free and open Indo-Pacific. The two sides also talked about Russia and Ukraine and North Korean missile issues.
Kishida also said Japan would host a meeting of the Quad, which includes the United States, Japan, Australia and India. Japan isn't just teaming up with the U.S. The nation also wants to boost cooperation with France. This is the Japanese foreign minister. Today we would like to deepen discussions to raise cooperation between Japan and France and Japan and the EU to another level to realize a free and open Indo-Pacific. Foreign and defense ministers from both Japan and France met on Thursday. France's involvement may come as a surprise to some, given its location. But it, too, holds a stake in the issue, as it controls some overseas territories in the Indo-Pacific. In recent months, China has been increasing its aggression in the Indo-Pacific region, like using military pressure to coerce its neighbors. In the Indo-Pacific region, there are continuous attempts to unilaterally change the status quo by coercion. The security environment has become tougher and has elevated instability for Japan and France. Japan's defense minister says the two countries should work more closely because France and Japan share what he calls mutual core values. British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss warned Russia that invading Ukraine would mean massive consequences in terms of sanctions from the UK and its allies. Speaking in Sydney, she said the Kremlin has not learned the lessons of history and urged President Putin to de-escalate before he makes a massive strategic mistake. Her comments came as American and Russian top diplomats met to defuse tensions. This report comes from NTD's Kostemenes. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss condemned Russia's behavior on Ukraine as Western states fear Moscow is planning an assault on its neighbor. The Kremlin haven't learnt the lessons of history. They dream of recreating the Soviet Union or a kind of greater Russia, carving up territory based on ethnicity and language. They claim they want stability while they work to threaten and destabilize others. We know what lies down that path and the terrible toll in lives lost and human suffering it brings. She spoke at the Lowy Institute think tank in Sydney on Friday. That's why we urge President Putin to desist and step back from Ukraine before he makes a massive strategic mistake. Truss warned Russia that an invasion would not only mean massive consequences in terms of sanctions from the UK and its allies, but that it could also end up as a quagmire. Ukraine is a proud country with a long history. They have known invading forces before, from the Mongols to the Tatars. They suffered through the state-sponsored famine. Their resilience runs deep. If they have to, Ukrainians will fight to defend their country. Invasion will only lead to a quagmire, as we know from the Soviet-Afghan war. Russian President Vladimir Putin seized control of Ukraine's Crimea Peninsula in 2014 and backed a separatist insurgency in eastern Ukraine. Moscow faced limited international consequences for those moves, but the West says a new invasion would be different. Truss also called on the UK's allies to respond in unity to the threat. We need everyone to step up. Together with our allies, we will continue to stand with Ukraine and urge Russia to de-escalate. What happens in Eastern Europe matters for the world. 
threats to freedom, democracy and the rule of law aren't just regional, they're global. Truss and Defence Secretary Ben Wallace met their Australian counterparts for the annual Australia-United Kingdom ministerial consultation. To reduce tensions, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov met in Geneva on Friday. Both of them said they didn't expect a breakthrough in the meeting. Afterwards, Blinken sought to project unity and a tough stance after U.S. President Joe Biden earlier this week suggested allies were split over how to react to any potential minor incursion from Russia. We've been clear. If any Russian military forces move across Ukraine's border, that's a renewed invasion. It will be met with swift, severe, and a united response from the United States and our partners and allies. Lincoln said that Washington had agreed to provide written comments to Russia after Moscow demanded security guarantees, including a pledge that Ukraine will never be able to join NATO. That could at least delay any imminent aggression for a few days. I can't say whether we're on the right track or not. We'll understand that when we receive the US's written response to all of our proposals. Lavrov repeated Russian assertions that it poses no threat to its neighbor. Kostemines, NTD News. Coming up, a former stunt pilot is auctioning off a Spitfire aircraft that flew during World War II and was featured in the 1969 film Battle of Britain. It's expected to fetch over $4 million. And in Russia, members of the Northern Lights Hunters Association are driven by a passion to track down auroras. They say it can take years to catch the most stunning displays of light. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Spitfire aircraft, with its record-breaking speeds at the time, was able to withstand the Nazi-German air assault during World War II. A former stunt pilot is ready to auction one of those original Spitfires for around $5 million. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. This Spitfire was a precious asset for the British during World War II, and it would later make an appearance in the 1969 film Battle of Britain. What you're looking at flew around during World War II, every bit of it, minus the, you know, the wing spars are the only thing on the aeroplane that's been replaced. And it really does set it apart from, from other aeroplanes. But also, of course, it's got this wonderful history, this, this great wartime history, and then all of the, you know, the sort of film star history after that, if you will. The plane is owned by the stunt pilot, who was hired for the film Battle of Britain. And when it came time to pay him for his work, he accepted an unusual form of payment. They owed me a bunch of money at the end of the movie, and... Uh... I just told him that uh, I'll take an uh, airplane. So I ended up with, I think it's 16 Master Smiths, and I traded uh, two of them for, for this Spitfire, which this is, this is the one I flew during the Battle of Britain and got shot down 72 times in this plane for actual takes. There are about 70 Spitfires remaining in the world that are still safe to fly. This one is expected to auction for $4.5 million. Jason Perry. NTD News. 
In Russia, members of the Northern Lights Hunters Association are driven by a passion to track down auroras. They monitor conditions to predict when and where they will see the best displays of the natural phenomenon caused by solar activity. NTD's Neil Woodrow brings us this report. Green lights flicker across the sky near St. Petersburg on the Baltic Sea. For the people below, this is exactly what they came to see. Natalia started watching Northern Lights 15 years ago, but she discovered under the city lights it was impossible to get good photos as urban light pollution obscures the phenomenon. Her passion inspired her to set up the Northern Lights Hunters Association. Members monitor conditions to predict when and where they will see the best displays. Central to that is studying the behavior of the sun. The Northern Lights are quite a difficult physical process. They are formed because the Earth has a strong magnetic field. And when there is a solar wind, as a result of the different process like coronary holes, explosions, solar mass ejection, and when this wind reaches our magnetic field, charged particles start to light up. But patience is still key. Roman joined the Northern Lights Hunters Association two years ago, but he had to wait until 2021 to see the most stunning display of his life. We were looking for a clear sky and I had found the window. And we were the few who witnessed the very vivid lighting. I was running around the bus and crying because, for the first time, I saw the multicolored dynamics. Northern Lights hunters are making the most of the last few months of the season. When spring comes, the light shows won't be visible and they will have to wait for darker nights once again. Neil Woodrow, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.